Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you come among us through your Spirit? Break open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a poem by Charles Causley. It's called Mother and Child. And it's Mary offering Christ at the temple. Holding in clear hands the world's true light, she lifts its perfect flame against the night. About its pulse of fire, earth and seas run, season and moon and star, the unruly sun. Upon the hill, a scuffed thinness of snow, first of green thorn, a stream stopped in its flow. She keeps within her hand the careful day, now the slow wound of night has bled away. Vivid upon her tongue, unspoken prayers that she may not outlive the life she bears. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. The Jews, of course, were looking and waiting for the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah was going to be the king who liberated Israel and from the, the oppression of the Romans and restored them as the people of God, God's kingdom, here where God's rule was visible to all to see. That is what the Messiah was supposed to do the king of the Jews. Instead, of course, Jesus, the king of the Jews, was crucified. What kind of a king is that? Where is the power of God in there? The one who's to restore God's kingdom 
is nailed on a humiliating cross for all to see by the roadside, that's what happens, what was done by the Romans to the one sent as the king of the Jews. How is that possible? The Greeks, of course, desire wisdom. They're searching for the philosophy that will allow them to understand the mystery of life. The Greeks spend hours and hours debating, philosophizing, understanding what life was about. And what's Paul proclaiming? A God stuck on a cross. Who on earth would believe that? Where is there any sense in that at all? There's no wisdom there. Follow this religion and you'll end up dead. So what's Paul talking about? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jew and Gentile, Christ power of God and the wisdom of God. How is a crucified man both power and wisdom? Well, let's turn to John, shall we? I don't know how you approach a book. I imagine most of you, like me, when you start reading a book, read it for its story or to discover something in it. You begin at the beginning and you end at the end. And hopefully when you turn to the last page and you get there, you've discovered something about what the story was trying to tell you. The Gospels aren't like that, though. Because when you read a Gospel, you already know the end before you begin it. It's not a book in that sense. John's in particular is the least of all of that. The Gospels are more like gardens that you enter. You know what the garden is supposed to be. But as you wander through the garden, you discover that there are little corners all over the place. The stories in the Gospels are little corners in the garden. And you go into this corner and you watch and you look and you explore and you discover the different plants that are there. You recognise them from elsewhere, but here you see them put against each other creating a new display and you think that's extraordinary I never knew that went like that or could become like this and then you go into another part of the garden and you see something different and so gradually the garden begins to make sense all its little corners and John 
is the master of the garden. You see, John's gospel is the garden of pure theology. Don't be put off by that word, theology. Lots of people are, I know. Theology simply means from the two Greek words, theo and logos. Logos means understanding or knowledge. Theo just means God. The knowledge and the understanding of God. A great 12th century Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, described theology as faith seeking understanding. That's all. All of you here are theologians seeking to understand your faith. So John's gospel is rich in all these gardens. And here we have one of the most precious corners. And John sets it right at the entrance of the garden. The first of what he calls Jesus' signs. Notice how the Jews were looking for a sign from God. John says, here's your sign from God. And so the story begins. On the third day, oh, we know what the third day is, don't we? The third day, bearing in mind we're not storytelling here, we're storytelling. The third day is the day of resurrection, isn't it? We know Christ rose on the third day. So here we are, we're coming to this little corner of the garden and we're setting the scene for the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding. The wedding. The wedding is God's marriage to his people, isn't it? That's what weddings are about. That's why we have marriage. It's the image of God marrying his people. That's what the covenant of the Old Testament was about. God calls his people to be his bride. So this is a story about resurrection and about a wedding. God and his people. And the mother of Jesus was there. The one who said yes to God coming into the world. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, it ran out. It became empty. The party ran out of steam. It had ended. There was a blankness and an emptiness to the celebrations. And the mother of Jesus, no, she's not, notice she's not named. She's just called the mother of Jesus. Says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, 
What concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. But what is Jesus' hour? Jesus' hour in John's Gospel is when he is on the cross. For John, and particularly for John, God's glory is revealed precisely at the moment of crucifixion. He is utterly in tune with what Paul is saying. When Paul says we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God, John says this is where God's glory is revealed, on the cross. That is his throne. Mary turns to the servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. Now there were standing there six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Remember numbers. There is no such thing as an accidental number in the Gospels. Six stone water jars. Six is the sixth day of creation. Six is the day on which humanity was created, along with all the animals. Six is the number of humankind. Six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification, of becoming ready to be in God's presence, to enter the temple, to worship, to glorify God. That's what the rites of purification were for. Six of them for the whole of humanity to become purified. What were they filled with? They were empty. They were filled with water. And Jesus tells them to fill with water and then to draw them and take it to the master of ceremonies. Each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, I don't know how much wine you get through at a party, but I doubt it's many gallons of wine. 20 to 30 in each of them? Well, you can either think of this as a booze-laden knees-up, or there's something else going on in this story. 20 to 30, twos and threes. Twos, whenever you see the number two in the Gospels, it's a reference to Christ as both man and God. And three becomes the number of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. 
2 and 3. And it's 20 and 30 because they're multiplied by 10. 10 is the number of the commandments. The perfect life lived before God. That's what the Ten Commandments are there for. They define, as it were, the boundaries of a life lived in God's presence. That's why they're all negatives, because they're kind of the limits. If you live in love, of course, you live at the heart of those, and you don't ever need those Ten Commandments. But that's what ten is. So twenty to thirty, yeah, it's kind of about an overflowing abundance of wine, but it's far more than that as well. This is the gospel. This is the garden that John's inviting us to explore. And when they're brought to the steward, what do they discover? That this is the finest of wines. We are in the presence of the third day the wedding feast of God with his people. And what is the result? The third day brings new creation. The water of ordinariness is turned into the wine of God's glorious presence among us. We have been transformed. The six we are the six jars and transformed on the third day, by the third day, into the wine of God's gift to the world. Why? Because of the cross. It all comes back to the cross. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. Why is the cross then the glory of God? Well, the clue is in that third day. It's because the cross is the place where God takes to himself all the darkness of the world. This last week, we've heard a lot of darkness. We hear of corruption in our own politicians again. But perhaps more seriously, we hear of brutality by police in America. And we hear of the ongoing bitterness and hatred between Jew and Palestinian in Israel. And the darkness that we see is in all of us. It's Holocaust remembrance at the moment as well. Human beings, us, we're capable of that, treating each other in that way. Whenever we look at somebody else and say, oh, they're a bit different, they're not like us, that's it. That's exactly the route that led to the Holocaust. In us. 
That's what the cross is about. Taking the darkness that's in our hearts and taking it to its end. God subsuming all our bitterness and our anger and our disappointment and our fear and our terror into himself and takes it to its end. Death on the cross, humiliation and defeat. But it's not the end because there is the third day where God's life bursts out of the tomb and God's love pours back into the world. And so our horizon is no longer defined by death. We look beyond it. Death no longer is the limit of where we see. So we don't need to live in fear of death anymore. Because God's love and his life comes to us from the other side. That's what we're doing at the communion table. When we kneel there, when we receive the broken body and blood of Christ transformed into wine. How do we do it? Well, that's where we come to Elijah's story. The land of famine outside the boundaries of Israel. The land of emptiness where everybody's starving. And Elijah comes to the widow and he says, Bake me first a morsel of bread and then feed yourself. But we don't have enough, she says. Give to me first, speaking the words of God. That's the challenge, brothers and sisters. Give what little you have first to God. Be that time, money, energy, prayer, whatever gift you have, whatever morsel you have, give it first to God. And it will be broken into abundance that becomes new wine in the world around you. That's who you are. That's who you're called to be. The wine that feeds the world. Amen.